0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. We'll be reading through verse 19 this morning. The word of the Lord. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 11 this morning. The word of our God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Every Sunday morning, we pray like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We do not pray like this out of a false sense of humility. We recognize that left to ourselves, we could not stand a chance against the evil one, that is, against Satan. That's why Luther taught us to sing like this. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Nevertheless, this morning when we open this passage, what we see is God the Father through the Holy Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness precisely so that Jesus will be tempted by Satan. Satan offers three temptations, and all three of them have proven remarkably effective for Satan throughout history. First, feed yourself. That is, if you have a genuine need, you are justified in doing whatever is necessary to meet that need. Feed yourself. Second, prove yourself. Instead of living your life based upon your relationship with God, do whatever is necessary to receive validation and approval from those around you. Prove yourself. And third, deliver yourself. In particular, Satan is offering Jesus a kingdom without the cross. In a similar way... The world, your own flesh, and the devil are all going to tempt you, each and every one of you, to do whatever it takes to avoid suffering in this life, even if it means compromising your relationship with the Lord. Deliver yourself. Feed yourself. Prove yourself. Deliver yourself. Those are three temptations that Satan has been successfully using throughout history. Now, we're going to look at these temptations in detail in just a moment. For our Lord's way of dealing with these temptations both reveals a great deal about Jesus, and it also gives us a guide for how we are to deal with such temptations in our own lives. But before we come to the dramatic encounter between Jesus and Satan, we need to consider how this passage is introduced. For the introduction helps us to see that this passage is about more Then Jesus providing us with a good that is indeed a perfect pattern for how we should resist temptation. This passage is a vital aspect of what Jesus does to establish the righteousness for your salvation. Look at verse one with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, You'll recall that to the utter astonishment of John the Baptist, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, had presented himself to be baptized. And after Jesus insisted, John relented. John had been preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as we know, Jesus had nothing at all, absolutely nothing, to repent from. And so John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized... But Jesus answered, Let it be so now that we will fulfill all righteousness. Then as Jesus was walking out of the river, the heavens were opened, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon Jesus. Then a great voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, we come to the baptism in order to be cleansed. As the triune God identifies with us and puts his name upon us, baptism for us is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. A righteousness which is necessary for each of us to have in order to be justified and adopted into God's family. We come to baptism to be cleansed, but that is not why Jesus came. Jesus comes not to be washed, but to cleanse the waters, as it were, that through them he might cleanse his people. Jesus came to baptism in order to identify with sinners like me and sinners like you, so that through his life, death, and resurrection, he would make us whiter than snow. That is why the Holy Spirit would drive the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, both to demonstrate the perfect righteousness of Christ, but also, in one sense, to establish the perfect righteousness of Christ as he faced the direct onslaught of Satan and clung to God by faith. Look at verse 1 again with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There are two personal agents at work in this passage. The devil and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit, and he was tempted by the devil. Both the Holy Spirit and the devil were involved, but they were involved to very different ends. The Holy Spirit was leading Jesus out into the wilderness so that he would be tempted, that he would pass the test and demonstrate his perfect righteousness. Satan was trying to trip Jesus up. This was a replay, as it were, of the very first temptation that took place in the Garden of Eden. But this temptation would take place under very different circumstances. Look at verse 2 with me. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Now, I have no idea what your experience of fasting is, but in my own life, I have never fasted for more than a couple of days. I've never even fasted for one whole week. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. His body was on the verge of starving. He was hungry. He was crying out for food to sustain himself in a withering wilderness, not in the Garden of Eden like Adam and Eve. The first Adam was tempted in paradise. The second Adam would be tempted in the barren wilderness when his body would have been crying out for for food simply to stay alive. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here in verse 3, the evil one is specifically identified as the tempter, and he comes trying to lead Jesus into temptation. If you are the Son of God, turn these loaves into bread. And We, of course, know that Jesus had all the power to do that. Right, later on in his ministry, Jesus would take just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish and feed this vast crowd. Right? And they weren't starving to death. They were hungry. Right? He didn't want them to pass out on their way home. Jesus had the power to do that, but he wouldn't do it here. Even though he was desperately hungry himself. Why is that? Well, here in verse 3, the evil one is specifically identified as the tempter, as I say. But you have to remember that the very last words that Jesus had heard before the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness were these. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Satan comes, he goes, oh, really? I mean, you don't really look like the son of God out here starving in the wilderness, right? Really? Why Why don't you feed yourself? if you're really the son of God. And Jesus says, I'm going to trust my father's words. The very last thing my father said to me is, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, to fully understand what is going on, you're going to need to keep two connections together in your head. I know that's a bit challenging, but you are a very smart congregation. I know that you can do this, particularly you young people. Some of your parents may have a difficult time following, but you young people will be able to follow this. There are two connections you need to keep in mind. One is between Jesus, the second Adam, and the first Adam in the garden, but the second is between the Son of God that is Jesus and the Son of God that is Israel, who is tempted in the wilderness. Matthew is telling the story of our Lord's temptation by connecting it with two critical Old Testament backgrounds. First, there is the intentional contrast between the first Adam being tempted in paradise and the second Adam being tempted in the wilderness. This is the most important contrast to grasp. If you're only going to get one, get this one. The contrast between Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden. Nevertheless, the second connection is also quite important. As soon as you think about it, it becomes obvious. The temptation of the Son of God in the wilderness is being contrasted with the testing of Israel in the wilderness. I mean, remember what the Lord said to Pharaoh. Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. Nevertheless, although God leads his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm... In the wilderness, Israel will become hungry, the very thing Jesus is. Israel will become hungry, and the people will murmur against Aaron, against Moses, and against God. Not surprisingly, this is not what Jesus does. Verse 4. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Satan is going to tempt Jesus three times feed yourself, prove yourself, deliver yourself. Each time, Jesus responds by quoting the Word of God from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the full quotation from Deuteronomy is helpful for us because it makes clear of his connection between the Son of God that is Israel and the Son of God that is Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 3 And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Israel became hungry, instead of trusting in the Lord, the Lord who had delivered them with many miracles, Instead of trusting in the Lord that he would provide for them, they grumbled against Moses, against Aaron, and ultimately against God. Jesus, by contrast, trusts his father. And he specifically quotes the second half of this verse as the reason why he would not follow Satan's temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. This verse contrasts two fundamentally different ways of living. We can live on the basis of satisfying our felt needs. You're all tempted to do that. Our culture is tempting you to do that. We can all live on the basis of satisfying our felt needs. That's a bread-alone sort of approach to life. Or we can live by trusting our Father in heaven and therefore taking him at his word and putting his word into practice in our lives. Beloved, you cannot do both. (laughs) Those, Those are contrasting approaches of life. The bread alone approach, or the approach that lives by every word that comes forth from your father's mouth. Now you can see how this connects to Israel in the wilderness, but you also see how it connects to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve had both the Lord's blessing and his word. They both knew, but they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the devil stirred up a desire within them, so they rationalized their way into rebellion. Genesis 3.6 puts it like this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Beloved, this is a profound warning to us. Remember, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were in paradise. You do not need to be starving to give in to this bread alone sort of approach to life. Living in one of the most affluent countries at one of the most affluent times in all of history will not prevent you from being tempted by greed. It will not prevent you from being tempted to satisfy your own desires first with this bread-alone sort of approach to life because it didn't satisfy Adam and Eve even when they were in paradise. Thankfully, Jesus shows us a better way. And that better way is based on two simple truths. We can all grasp these truths. The key is to keep them in our mind and to put them into practice. First, you must both know and keep reminding yourself about the goodness of your Father in heaven. I mean, that is really simple. But I want to suggest that nobody pursues the bread-alone sort of way of life while simultaneously contemplating the goodness of God. Simply contemplating, giving thanks to God for all his goodness in your life, is itself something that keeps you on the right path. Let me say that again. It's important for us to get into our thinking Nobody ever gives in to Satan while contemplating the goodness of God. Second, if your chief desire is to please God, then, then these temptations of Satan are going to be obvious from the very beginning. And I say Satan, but also from your own flesh in the world. If your desire is to please God, the temptations will be obvious and obviously wrong. But if your desire is to use God, you'll be a sitting duck. Understand the difference. I mean, many people who go to church, even read the Bible, sing hymns sometimes, they see God as a means to something other than God. And if following God isn't getting you to what they want, then they're very tempted to follow Satan's lead and say, I'll do something else. If your desire is to use God, you are a sitting duck. If your desire is to please God, Well, by God's grace, he will make you stand. Here's the problem. The plain reality is is we're all a mixed bag. I mean, none of us is 100% over here, otherwise we wouldn't sin at all. The reality is, is that even at our best, we are still a mixed bag. Even if we regularly remind ourselves of the goodness of God, and even if our desire is increasingly to please him, we fall far short of being completely sanctified. And beloved, that's one of the reasons why Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Don't think I'm calling you to imitate me in my resistance to Satan. I'm calling you to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? Recognize our own remaining weakness and say, Lord, I can't bear up to that temptation, that direct assault from Satan in my own power. Please keep me from it. It is helpful for us to see that our Lord's triumph over the devil's first temptation did not simply cause Satan to run away. I I trust you all realize um, that if you get tempted tomorrow morning and you successfully meet that temptation by trusting in the Lord, you can't simply check the box and say, I'm good for the rest of the year or the rest of the week or the rest of the day. It's not how temptation works. Jesus successfully overcomes Satan's first temptation... And Satan says, i got another trick up my sleeves. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands... They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If the first temptation is feed yourself, that is meet your felt needs, which was actually a genuine need here, the second temptation is prove yourself. That may not be as immediately uh, obvious to you. But what he's saying is, oh, Jesus, you're going to be quoting the word of God. You're going to be all pious and righteous here, right? How much do you trust the word of God? Are you willing to stake your life on it? Let me give you a passage from Psalm 91 where it seems like what God is saying is it God's not going to allow you to dash your foot against a stone. Do you trust the word of God, Jesus? Prove it. Go ahead, jump. Throw yourself down and demonstrate it. Now you might not think that's a temptation you're going to face, and let's be honest, Satan is not going to bring you up onto. Sears Tower, the Empire State Building, or something to exactly replicate this. But actually, the temptation to prove ourselves is something that we face every single day. Where where other people come in and they're like, you know, well, if you're really going to be righteous or pious or whatever, you're going to do X or Y or Z. They may be fellow Christians, actually. Right? Or it may simply be people that are calling for you to gain their approval. You know, you're not one of those judgmental Christians, right? You're going to affirm me in my sin and they're saying god prove prove you're a good person and you will want to do that you really will for honest with ourselves it turns out that on a pretty regular basis we are willing to modify our behavior our thoughts and our words in an effort to vindicate ourselves before the eyes of the world our neighbors our friends even our family members Uh, you know this is true, because if you ever go on Facebook, you can think of all the silly arguments which take place every day on Facebook because people are trying to vindicate themselves, sometimes to complete strangers. Right? And it's not just about them. This is a struggle for all of us. When someone criticizes or otherwise casts into doubt some aspect of our identity which is important to us, we are very prone to say things... Or to even change what we are doing in order to demonstrate that they are wrong. Isn't that the case? It may just be someone you just met at school. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will acknowledge that we frequently feel like we need to prove ourselves to other people. I do want to say that's actually not always bad. But it is always dangerous. Right? It would actually be wrong for you to be utterly indifferent what everyone around you thinks, right? That, that, that would be a bad attitude. We ought to care about, you know, what our parents think, what our spouses think, right? what our children think, what our friends think. It's, that's a healthy thing to do. But the danger comes from the fact that caring about what other human beings think gives them power to influence your life. Could be for good. You know, if you're a young person, your parents, they're not infallible, but they really do want your life to be good. They want to bless you. They want to tell you the truth. They want to keep you safe. They want you to grow up strong and to love the Lord. So it it can be good for you. But I trust you all realize how easily it can be bad for you too. This is a dangerous position to be in. Uh, Many of us can relate to this challenge, frankly, a lot more than we'd like to admit. So I ask, how do we move away from living like that where we're living to impress mere human beings. And I have two thoughts for you. First, consider the big picture. Why in the world would Jesus care at all what Satan thinks of him? Right? Why would he want to prove himself to Satan? And of course, you could apply that to yourself. Most of the people in your life, you can say, they have not the slightest claim on my life, or the amount they have is the slimmest possible. I ought not to be too concerned about what someone I've never met on Facebook happens to think about me. Most people only have a marginal claim on the way that you live. The one person whom you need to seek to please in everything that you do is the living God. His smile upon your life ought to outweigh everyone else's frown. That's really the key point. And second... Jesus refuses to be thrown off balance by the fact that the devil is twisting scriptures. I mean, Psalm 91, that Satan quotes, we actually sang before the service, is a beautiful psalm of comfort for God's people. It is not a psalm inviting us to put the Lord to the test, as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, that that, in fact, would be a sin. Therefore, Jesus once again quotes scripture, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus said to the devil, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, for most of you, you'll get this, but I want to say something to some of you who are younger and are just kind of getting used to using the Bible and applying it in your own life. This is not a case of Satan quoting scripture and Jesus quoting scripture. And what can you do? You can quote scripture to prove anything at all. Satan is distorting and twisting scripture. Jesus is rightly interpreting it, rightly applying it, and critically, he's living it out. See, God does not say that man does not live by bread alone, but by getting really high scores on Bible exams. He says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes forth from his Father's mouth. You understand, Jesus here is not simply rightly implying scripture to Satan, he's doing it. The fact that he refuses to put to this test, or to put the Lord to this test, is an example of Jesus living by the Word of God. The first Adam was called God's Son, and his sin plunged humanity into misery and ruin. Israel was called God's son, yet nearly every adult male who got rescued from Egypt died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. But beloved, Jesus is faithful. Now perhaps we see even more clearly why the Son of God chose to identify with his people through baptism. Uh, Jeffrey Gibbs puts it like this. Jesus receives John's baptism as the representative and substitute for the people. It is God's will that Jesus, the Son of God, be tempted and so prove himself to be the one who will overcome Satan in the place of and for the sake of God's people. Jesus heroically refused to feed himself or to prove himself, not only to give you a pattern for life, but also so that he might give you life through his righteousness. Nevertheless, Satan still has one more trick up his sleeve. Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, like Israel of old in the desert, Jesus is tempted to commit crass idolatry. He's being tempted to worship Satan. You've got to ask yourself, why would that be attractive? I mean, isn't Jesus going to get all the kingdoms of this world anyway? He is, after all, the king, the incarnate God. What is Satan actually offering him here? And I want to suggest he's not offering him the kingdoms. He's offering him a different way to get to the kingdoms. He's offering the kingdoms without the cross. Right? Jesus knows that the way he's going to come and redeem his people is to die in our place. We should not think of this as a small thing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will sweat, as it were, great drops of blood as he pleads with his Father Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. And the devil's going, I got a shortcut for you. Deliver yourself. I mean, not deliver yourself from hell. Jesus doesn't need to go to hell, although in one sense it's pretty close to hell because Jesus experiences hell on the cross for his people. He's saying, deliver yourself from suffering. I'm giving you an easier way out. I am offering you the kingdom without the cross. And I call this temptation, deliver yourself. Satan was tempting Jesus to deliver himself from the excruciating and humiliating agony of the cross. And as I say, this was no light temptation. And Satan is saying to Jesus, you can bypass all that if you will just genuflect a little bit to me. Go ahead, Jesus. Deliver yourself. Now, thankfully, Satan can't actually tempt you in that same way because Jesus has already suffered hell on your behalf. There is no more wrath of God left for you. Nevertheless, I want to say Satan tempts you precisely in this way. Not in terms of the outcome, but this temptation to deliver yourself from suffering and hardship in this world. And I I say this with real sorrow. Um, When I look around at Western Christians, how little suffering it takes for Christians to be willing to compromise in the West today. We're not talking about people having their arms cut off as we see some of our brothers and sisters in some Muslim countries dealing or even being killed for the gospel, how little suffering it takes before that call to deliver yourself becomes a very real temptation to turn away from living by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Once again, we hear an echo of Old Testament Israel in the devil's words. Satan says to Jesus, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Uh, that exact expression, fall down and worship me, is routinely used in the Old Testament to talk about Israel falling down and worshiping the false gods. It's about their idolatry. Yet Jesus replies in verse 10, "Begone, Satan, for it stands written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus not only quotes Scripture... He is the one who lives it out. From the incident of the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, all the way up until Israel was sent into the Babylonian captivity, Israel kept breaking the first commandment, committing spiritual adultery by running after foreign gods, but not Jesus. Once again, Professor Gibbs puts it well. Jesus is the one who lives by every word that comes from God's mouth. He is the one who will refuse to put God to the test. And Jesus is the one who will worship and serve the Lord his God alone. Now after Jesus has triumphed over Satan in all three temptations we read, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan does depart defeated, but he does not depart in utter despair. In fact, later in the Gospels, we will see that Satan returns to tempt Jesus again and actually offering the very same temptations. He'll do it subtly through the mouths of his own disciples. I mean, remember, it's Peter who tells Jesus, right after he makes that great confession of faith, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he tells Jesus, you'll never die. Far be that from you. And Jesus, recognizing where the temptation comes from, says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan is not done, but neither is Jesus. Though the events that this temptation puts into motion are going to be painful to Jesus, the serpent truly will strike the Messiah's heel, but through his death and resurrection, the Messiah will crush Satan's head. Jesus is the victor over Satan. Uh, That's one obvious truth that we are taught in this morning's passage. Jesus is the victor over Satan. But what difference should that make in your life this week? I have three very concise applications for you. First, let's remember that the Jesus who calls us to take up our cross and follow him refused to turn aside from his mission to avoid suffering. From the beginning to the very end of his public ministry, Jesus chose faithfulness to God in spite of the cost. This is the path he is calling you to walk as well. Second, in response to moralistic preaching, where the Bible is treated like a collection of Aesop's fables, many Reformed Christians tend to ignore the practical application of Christ's action to our own life. As though the only important thing is that we understand the passage correctly. And while this morning's passage is not primarily about a moral example, it is about a pattern of how we ought to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's both things. It's a pattern how we are to deal with those three fundamental types of temptation. Feed yourself, prove yourself, and deliver yourself the wise disciple will learn both about Jesus and from him. It's a both end. And third, the most important thing to grasp this morning is the contrast between Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden and Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. The Lord had entered into a covenant of life with Adam on condition of Adam's perfect personal and perpetual obedience We call that covenant the covenant of works. Thankfully, when our first covenant had sinned and plunged humanity into misery and death, God did not give up on us. Rather, the Lord established the covenant of grace with his own son as the second Adam, where our first representative failed, our second representative succeeded. Jesus obtained the perfect righteousness that God requires of his people, by living a perfect life of faith and obedience, and then he voluntarily chose to die in your place. As the Apostle Paul would later tell the Romans, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Therefore we are very bold to sing like this, Because the sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen.